Welcome to another edition of Ghoul Talk, a special summer edition. I'm Daniel, and with me in spirit is Lindsay. How you doing, Lindsay? That's great. Uh, we have a good time. Anyway, people are busy in the summer, uh, as you all know, and because of that, we were not able to get together to record a regular episode for you guys this time. However, we were able to dig into the archives and mine out some juicy, juicy nuggets, which we then polished up in the old nugget polishing machine for your consumption. So, this week we bring you two such nuggets from the vault. And one of them, oh boy, it's even better than you might remember it, and you only would remember it if you listened to our last podcast, which is no longer available on iTunes, (laughs) apparently. Uh, Working on that for all the castle lingus fans out there uh but in the meantime uh yeah i'm gonna just i'm just gonna stop talking and get this show on the road so uh we will see you next time with a uh delicious new episode and i hope you're all having a great summer and watching out for those dads and grads make sure you get your dad a tie everyone Nugget One, Snore with Karen Janky. I love a good ghost story as much as the next fellow. Prophecies tell the future. They tell of the downfall of great hubris, the search for large fortune, and the unfortunate vision of violent ends. They come to us in dreams, in tarot cards, and sometimes, it seems, from the woman holding a crystal ball at the Bristol Renaissance Fair, who told you she was a powerful sorceress, but turned out to be a middle-aged mom from Kenosha with excellent taste in velvet robes. Prophecies are also often seen in symbols. Symbols like the moth. Those that read Celtic animal birth signs say that moths symbolize determination, attraction, psychic abilities, and faith. Science tells us that moths are drawn to light, like a moth to a flame, they say. No one knows exactly why these fluttering beings are attracted to light, though. Some say artificial light confuses their internal navigation systems. Others, that male moths are attracted to candlelight, believing it to be female moths sending out sex signals. I think there's a joke in there somewhere. The Arabid moth Ascophila orderata bears the common name Black Witch. It is, you see, considered a harbinger of death in Mexican and Caribbean folklore. But what if a moth becomes the light? 
drawing unsuspecting people to take notice, sometimes leading them to danger, destruction, and even death. In rural Northwest West Virginia between 1966 and 1967, prophecy was reality, not fiction. I'm Karen Shanky, and this is Snore. November 12, 1966, five men were preparing a grave in the local cemetery near Clendon in West Virginia. Their work proceeded as in any other day in that solemn place until strange movement in the nearby trees diverted their attention. Suddenly, someone, or something, shot up and out of those trees, flying over their heads and away from sight. They described the creature as a brown human being, not a bird, but more like a man with wings. This startling vision of a flying man would just be the first of many strange sightings that year in West Virginia. Three days after the gravedigger's sighting, two young couples were driving past an abandoned TNT plant near Point Pleasant, West Virginia, a town just over the river from Ohio. In the remnants of the building, they saw two large eyes glowing. As the eyes moved toward the open plant door, they saw that these weren't just floating orbs, no. These eyes were attached to a figure, quote, shaped like a man, but bigger, maybe six or seven feet tall, and it had big wings folded against its back. They sped away, but sometimes, you see, cars aren't fast enough to escape terror. The creature followed them, spreading its wings, flying in the air behind their car, traveling at over 100 miles per hour. When they got to the Point Pleasant city limits, though, the figure disappeared. That same evening, in a town 90 miles northeast of Point Pleasant, local building contractor Newell Partridge was watching television. Suddenly, the screen went dark, and a strange pattern appeared. At the same moment, from outside his window, he heard keening sounds, much like a woman screaming, increasing in pitch and volume. They stopped abruptly. His dog, Bandit, began howling, so Newell Partridge went outside to investigate. He aimed his flashlight into the hay barn and saw two large circles floating around like orbs. Bandit ran off the porch toward the barn against Newell's protest. Newell went back into the house for his shotgun, but found himself too paralyzed with fear to go back outside. Bandit was an outdoor dog, you see, who usually slept in the barn. That night, Newell slept with his shotgun propped against his bed. Two days passed with no sign of Bandit. On the morning of the second day, Noel discovered he was not the only one who saw strange things that night. In the newspaper, one of those who witnessed the strange bird at the TNT plant claimed that as they passed through the city limits of Point Pleasant, he saw a body of a large dog lying on the side of the road. When he looked back a few seconds later, the dog was gone. The group stopped the car and looked for the dog, but found nothing. Bandit was never seen again. On November 16th, the city officials held a press conference where the two couples described their experience driving past the abandoned TNT plant. 
The news of these strange sightings caught fire and spread across the country. The press dubbed the flying creature Mothman. But what was this moth? Was he from Celtic folklore, symbolizing determination? Or was it the Black Witch, foretelling death and destruction? On the same day the press conference was held, Marcella Bennett saw a funny red light hovering over the TNT plant. Mind you, this was no airplane. Not worrying too much about it, Marcella drove to her friend's house. When she parked and got out, something stirred on the ground near her car. It seemed as though it had been lying down, Marcella said. It rose slowly from the ground, a big gray thing, bigger than a man with terrible, glowing eyes. She ran into her friend's house, where they locked everyone inside, the mothman, or whatever it was, moved toward the house, peering into the windows with its large, glowing eyes. Before the police could get there, though, the creature disappeared. For months after, Marcella swore she heard keening sounds, much like a woman screaming. In December 1966, writer John Keel arrived in Point Pleasant to chronicle these strange happenings. He compiled reports of Mothman sightings and UFO activity, evidence that suggested a problem with televisions and phones that began in the fall of 1966. Keel was convinced that the intense period of activity was all connected. Just a note, if you've ever read anything about John Keel, you might assume his surname, which is spelled K-E-E-L, is pronounced Keel. But it's Keel. Trust me, I did my homework on this. Keel chronicled at least 100 people personally witnessing the Mothman between November 1966 and November 1967. These eyewitnesses described the creature as five to seven feet tall with gray or brown skin. Eyes were set near its shoulders, and it was wider than a man and walked on human legs. Its wings were bat-like, and they glided rather than flapped when it flew. Somehow, though, it was able to take off in a straight line, like a helicopter. These witnesses claimed the Mothman was incapable of speech, but did emit screeching sounds, much like a woman screaming. The Mothman sightings, though, were only a part of the tragedy coming to the rural town of Point Pleasant. 5 o'clock p.m. on the evening of December 15, 1967, it was dark already, and the rush hour traffic choked the movement across the Silver Bridge, a 700-foot connection between Point Pleasant and Gallipolis, Ohio. One eye-bar link, overstressed by continuously overweight loads and insufficient maintenance, broke, creating a crack that quickly grew. Witnesses afterward estimated that it took only about a minute for the whole bridge to fall. Forty-six people were killed. On that same night, Martella Bennett's friends counted more than 12 eerie lights that flashed above their home and vanished into the forest. So, was the Mothman a hoax or a prophecy? Many may deny that a humanoid creature with wings could even exist, let alone foretell a tragedy like the Silver Bridge collapse. Could it have been a large owl, or as Sand Hill Crane as some suggest? Despite these attempts at rational explanation, though, Mothman remains hard to easily dismiss. Nearly 100 eyewitnesses saw something. Many across the world deem the sheer number and consistency of these eyewitnesses' accounts 
Credible enough to believe Mothman did visit West Virginia, potentially signaling to the community something significant. John Keel believes that Point Pleasant was a window area, a place that was marked by long periods of strange sightings, monster reports, and the interactions with unusual persons. He won't go so far as to blame the collapse of the bridge on the Mothman sightings, mind you, but he notes that the intense activity in the area at the time does suggest some sort of connection. But how are the people of Point Pleasant to know the Mothman, such as they saw him, could be a prophetic symbol of impending tragedy? How could they know his glowing eyes and light signals in the sky were meant to draw them in? How could they know that the Mothman was trying to make them pay attention to the fact that deferred maintenance in older and historic structures can have dire consequences? This episode of Snore was written and produced by me, Karen Sankey, with research from the Mothman Prophecies by John Keel, PrairieGhost.com, and Wikipedia. Nugget 2, The Raven, remaster? I love a good ghost story as much as the next fellow. The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe, published 1845. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered weak and weary over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. "'Tis some visitor, I muttered tapping at my chamber door, only this and nothing more. Ah, distinctly I remember, it was in the bleak December, and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly I wished the morrow, vainly I had sought to borrow, from my book's surcease of sorrow, sorrow for the lost Lenore, for the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore, nameless here forevermore. And the silken sad uncertain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terrors never felt before, so that now to still the beating of my heart I stood repeating, "'Tis some visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door, some late visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door. This it is, and nothing more. Presently my soul grew stronger, hesitating then no longer. "'Sir,' I said, "'or madam, truly your forgiveness I implore. But the fact is I was napping, and so gently you came rapping, and so faintly you came tapping, tapping at my chamber door.' 
that I scarce was sure I heard you. Here I opened wide the door. Darkness there, and nothing more. Deep into that darkness peering long, I stood there wondering, fearing, doubting, dreaming dreams no mortal ever dared to dream before. But the silence was unbroken, and the stillness gave no token, and the only word there spoken was the whispered word, Lenore. This I whispered, and an echo murmured back the word, Lenore. Merely this, and nothing more. Back into the chamber turning, all my soul within me burning, soon again I heard a tapping, somewhat louder than before. Surely, said I, surely that is something at my window lattice. Let me see, then, what thereat is, and this mystery explore. Let my heart be still a moment, and this mystery explore. Tis the wind, and nothing more. Open here I flung the shutter, when with many a flirt and flutter, in there stepped a stately raven of the saintly days of yore. Not the least obsessance made he, not a minute stopped or stayed he, but with mien of lord or lady perched above my chamber door, perched upon a bust of palace just above my chamber door, perched and sat, and nothing more. Then this ebony bird beguiling my sad fancy into smiling, by the grave and stern decorum of the countenance it wore. Though thy crest be shorn and shaven, thou, I said, art sure no craven, ghastly grim and ancient raven wandering from the nightly shore. Tell me what thy lordly name is on the night's Plutonian shore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. Much I marveled this ungainly fowl to hear discourse so plainly, though its answer little meaning, little relevancy bore. For we cannot help agreeing that no living human being ever yet was blessed with seeing bird above his chamber door, bird or beast upon the sculpted bust above his chamber door, with such name as nevermore. But the raven, sitting lonely on the placid bust, spoke only that one word, as if his soul in that one word did he outpour. Nothing farther than he uttered, not a feather than he fluttered, till I scarcely more than muttered, other friends have flown before, on the morrow he will leave me, as my hopes have flown before. Then the bird said, Nevermore. Startled at the stillness broken by reply so aptly spoken, Doubtless, said I, what it utters is his only stock and store, Caught from some unhappy master whom unmerciful disaster Followed fast and followed faster till his songs one burden bore, Till the dirges of his hope that melancholy burden bore, Of never, nevermore. But the raven still beguiling all my fancy into smiling, straight I wheeled a cushioned seat in front of bird and bust and door. Then upon the velvet sinking I betook myself to linking, fancy unto fancy, thinking what this ominous bird of yore, what this grim, ungainly, ghastly, gaunt, and ominous bird of yore meant in croaking, nevermore. This I sat engaged in guessing, but no syllable expressing to the fowl whose fiery eyes now burned into my bosom's core. This and more I sat divining, with my head at ease reclining, on the cushion's velvet lining that the lamplight gloated o'er, but whose velvet violet lining with the lamplight gloating o'er, she shall press, ah, nevermore. Then methought the air grew denser, perfumed from an unseen censer, swung by seraphim whose footfalls tinkled on the tufted floor. Wretch, I cried, thy God hath lent thee, by these angels he hath sent thee, respite, respite, and nepenthe from thy memories of Lenore. Quaff, oh, quaff this kind Nepenthe, and forget this lost Lenore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, whether temper sent or whether tempest tossed thee here ashore, desolate yet all undaunted, on this desert land enchanted, 
on this home by horror haunted. Tell me truly, I implore. Is there, is there balm in Gilead? Tell me, tell me, I implore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, by that heaven that bends above us, by that God we both adore, tell this soul with sorrow laden, if within the destined Aden, it shall clasp a sainted maiden whom the angels name Lenore, clasp a rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. Be that word our sign of parting, bird or fiend, I shrieked, upstarting. Get thee back into the tempest and the night's plutonian shore. Leave no black plume as a token of that lie thy soul hath spoken. Leave my loneliness unbroken. Quit the bust above my door. Take thy beak from out my heart and take thy form from off my door. Quoth the raven, nevermore. And the raven, never flitting, still is sitting, still is sitting on the pallid bust of Pallas just above my chamber door. And his eyes have all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming, and the lamplight o'er him streaming throws his shadow on the floor. And my soul from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted nevermore. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs>